What I'd, what I'd like to do today is to try to outline how I think the Palestinians have uh, arrived at what has become probably their most serious and arguably um, existential crisis since uh, 1948. And to do so, I would like to um, speak primarily about the internal Palestinian dynamics more than um, the Israeli-Palestinian ones. But by way of introduction, I'd like to start my narrative with 2004 and the aftermath of the death slash murder of uh, the late Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat, and to just recall what the situation was like at that time. Uh, the main development in the previous two decades, of course, had been um, the Oslo agreements that I think many people interpreted as a promising initiative that could lead to a um, uh, just and uh, durable and, and uh, comprehensive Israeli-Palestinian and Arab-Israeli peace. Although, of course, in reality, particularly for those of you who have taken the trouble to read that three-page document, it was nothing of the sort. Rather, it was the document and the process that transformed the question of Palestine from an um, anti-colonial uh, national liberation struggle for self-determination into a consolidation of permanent Israeli control over Palestine and the Palestinian people. I won't get into the reasons as to why the PLO under Arafat um, uh, entered into this uh, agreement, except to say that during the 1990s, it became increasingly clear that Israel had no intention of relinquishing its occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, including East Jerusalem, and acceding to the establishment of an independent and sovereign Palestinian state in those uh, territories. Rather, it continued, in fact, at an accelerated and unprecedented pace with the expansion of Jewish settlements in the occupied territories. And it became particularly clear in the summer of 2000 with the failed Camp David summit held under the auspices of um, former U.S. President Bill Clinton that the most um, the Israelis were prepared uh, to concede in any um, peace agreement fell far short of the bare minimum that any Palestinian uh, leader could, would be prepared to accept and sell to his own people, let alone um, survive as a legitimate Palestinian leader. And um, it's in this context and uh, the subsequent extraordinarily and deliberately provocative visit by the late uh, Israeli leader Ariel Sharon, who was then leader of the opposition, to the Haram al-Sharif compound that the second intifada erupted. Um, it very quickly, unlike the first intifada, transformed from a series of mass popular protests into um, a militarized uh, armed uh, uprising against both um, the Israeli military and colonial settler presence in the occupied territories as well as an entire series of armed attacks, including suicide bombings and so on, within Israeli cities. Israel's strategy during this period was, was first to dismantle the Palestinian Authority and particularly its, uh, its security forces, um, most notably in 2002 with Operation Defensive Shield, which effectively uh, meant the reconquest of those areas of the West Bank, the 20% of, uh, of the West Bank that had been 
under Palestinian Authority uh, jurisdiction and to further isolate the Gaza Strip. And lastly, to um, isolate and seek to make politically irrelevant um, the leadership of Yasser Arafat, something in which after 2001, um, the Israelis had the enthusiastic partnership of, um, of the American administration, of Bush uh, Jr. And ultimately, on the 4th of November, 2004, was it the 11th of November, um, uh, Yasser Arafat uh, breathed his last in a military hospital in Paris. I think to uh, most people, it's quite clear that he did not expire uh, of natural causes though the full details of, um, of precisely how he was um, murdered and by who remains to be clarified. Be that as it may, at that time there was a, a consensus within the Palestinian leadership, and by this I mean the leadership of the Palestinian National Liberation Movement, Fatah, which um, formed the spinal cord of the Palestinian National Movement, and also among the PLO leadership and, and the senior officials of the Palestinian Authority, that um, Arafat should be succeeded by uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, Abu Mazen, who, um, despite his reputation as one of the historic leaders of the Palestinian National Movement, had, for most of that period, been somewhat of an outsider and had not really been closely involved in the rough and tumble of Palestinian politics during the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and, and uh, 80s, and I think this also explains why he was a um, why he was a consensus candidate. He was seen as someone who was um, uh, sufficiently weak in order not to challenge the various rival power centers which had emerged uh, over the decade, and um, as someone who ultimately could also be controlled by um, uh, let's say by the prevailing Palestinian forces and power centers. Well, it turned out to be a quite uh, mistaken assessment because Abu Mazen, as he's commonly known, managed to very quickly and very successfully um, not only consolidate his position, but to consolidate power over the Palestinian political system to an unprecedented degree. And my argument would be that the key to his success is that he quite deliberately set out to dismantle that political system in order to um, uh, control it. And I would start by briefly um, trying to provide an outline of, of what his succession and political strategy was, which is that first of all, he felt that the Palestinian um, uh, weakness and failures uh, were essentially the fault of the Palestinians themselves rather than of either the Israelis and their occupation or the strategic support for this occupation by the Americans and, and other um, American allies. And he therefore felt that the primary responsibility of the Palestinians and of his leadership was to demonstrate to the Israelis and to the Americans that the Palestinians under um, Abu Mazen were a responsible and credible partner for peace and for diplomatic uh, negotiations. Um, uh, this meant essentially, because I think Abu, even Abu Mazen understood that the Israelis weren't interested in either responsible or irresponsible Palestinian leadership, whether um, it was credible or not was immaterial to them because they wanted to continue with consolidating their strategic control over the occupied territories and therefore 
it was primarily an appeal to Washington and to the Americans to exercise pressure on the Israelis to come back to the negotiating table on the basis of his ability to establish his control over his own people. This meant, first and foremost, um, putting an end to the, um, to the Al-Aqsa Intifada, the, the uprising that had commenced in 2000, and primarily eliminating um, the militias that had uh, arisen during this period, particularly the Fatah-affiliated Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, uh, which were you know, not only part of the movement that he also led, but were also, also had um, various uh, close relationships with the Palestinian security forces, which in the end were charged with um, uh, reviving law and order, as it was known, in the occupied uh, territory. Secondly, he sought to integrate the um, Islamic resistance movement, Hamas, which operated outside the Palestinian Authority and outside the PLO, to integrate them into the Palestinian political system as a minority faction who on the one hand would thereby be bound by any decisions uh, the Palestinian leadership under Abu Mazen would take, while at the same time would not have sufficient clout and power to uh, determine policy of, of the Palestinian uh, national movement. So that, in broad outlines, is how I would characterize um, Mahmoud Abbas's policy. At the same time, uh, Hamas was itself seeking to develop its own um, uh, approach and policy for the post-Arafat era. I think Hamas well understood that as long as you know, the iconic leader Arafat was in charge of the Palestinian national movement, and given his more or less unfettered total control over this movement, that there would be no meaningful place w for them within the Palestinian political system. With his demise, all that changed, and they were particularly um, uh, interested in converting the growing levels of popular support that had accrued to them as a consequence of their role uh, during the Second Intifada to convert that popular support into institutional power. And this meant essentially two things, integration into the Palestinian Authority, and playing a role in Palestinian governance in the occupied territories, and secondly, um, participation in, in the PLO, uh, political participation, power sharing even, so that they would play a role in national political decision making. Is, what's, is my PowerPoint? Uh, okay. So you had on the one hand, Mahmoud Abbas seeking to integrate Hamas into the political system as a minority faction that would be bound by the decisions of, of the majority without being able to veto it. Well, from Hamas's perspective, it sought integration, but also as a powerful minority faction with the idea that on the one hand, it would be able to exercise veto power over the decision-making um, of, of the leadership, while at the same time, as a minority, not having um, the responsibility of power, and that therefore uh, the leadership of Abbas and the Fatah movement and the PLO leadership would continue to bear responsibility for all the failures of the national movement and any unpopular decisions it would have to make, and that this would um, lead to uh, increased popular support and popular authority for for Hamas as as the chief rival to Fatah. It was in a way, and, and I should add that it was already during this period, if not earlier, that Hamas had accepted the principle of a two-state settlement to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But their approach was essentially 
let Fatah and the PLO do the dirty work of actually achieving the settlement. On the one hand, we will take credit for it as Hamas by saying, you know, it was as a result of arm, our armed resistance and so on that Israel was compelled to withdraw from the occupied territories. But at the same time, all, all the you know, um, compromises involved will be the responsibility of the Fatah leadership and not of uh, Hamas. Now, this was all supposed to be consecrated, if you will, with the 2006 Palestinian Authority legislative elections. Um, the only problem is that the, cal is that the calculations of both um, Mahmoud Abbas and the Fatah movement on the one hand and of Hamas on the other hand failed because Hamas scored a spectacular victory in those elections and in fact achieved a veto-proof majority in the Palestinian Legislative um, uh, Council. And this created a new challenge of um, how, do, how do the Palestinians now go about with this new reality where all of a sudden the levers of institutional power, at least within the occupied territories, are at least formally no longer in the hands of the movement that established the Palestinian Authority and has led it for almost, uh, for more than uh, a decade but are now at least formally in the hands of, of Hamas. Well, the problem became um, that neither Fatah nor Hamas were prepared to accept the other, even if there were initial indications that they might have done so. From the perspective of Fatah and Abu Mazen, um, the idea that 40 years of their hegemony over the Palestinian political system could be undone by a single uh, election was considered um, uh, absurd and, and outrageous, and they had absolutely no intention of um, uh, handing over uh, the crown jewels, if you will, to Hamas simply because of a single election result. Uh, Hamas, for its part, took an attitude that that one election result effectively undoes what had passed in the four previous, um, what had passed in the four previous decades. And ultimately, neither party was prepared to engage in serious power sharing or, uh, or political participation. And I think it's important to point out here, consistently egged on by Israel and particularly the international community, which in the form of the quartet put forward what were essentially a set of ideological litmus tests and preconditions that were designed to be rejected and unimplemented by Hamas in order to justify the subsequent boycott, which was uh, placed against the new Palestinian uh, government led by um, Prime Minister Ismail Haniya. So ultimately, this resulted in 2000 in what became a formal Palestinian schism. Muhammad Dahlan, the Fatah warlord, egged on in particular by, um, uh, at the time, Elliot Abrams, who was um, in charge of the National uh, Middle East portfolio in the National Security Council, sought to seize power in, in the Gaza Strip. Um, he was preempted by the Hazardin al-Qassam brigades, the military wing of the Hamas movement, and Hamas whether deliberately or by default, I think remains somewhat of an unanswered question, seized total control over the Gaza Strip. And you now had a multi-dimensional Palestinian schism where it was no longer just a political rivalry between two factions, Hamas and Fatah, but it also assumed very clearly defined geographical dimensions. The Gaza Strip under Hamas control on the one hand and on the other, 
the West Bank under joint Israeli-Palestinian um, Authority um, uh, jurisdiction, strongly supported by the West. And increasingly, this took on uh, socioeconomic and arguably even cultural dimensions as the years um, passed. Now, this led to um, the beginning of, of a whole variety of attempts at what became known as Palestinian national reconciliation, all of whom failed. And the reason for this, I think, is quite clear, is that both Fatah and Hamas had incompatible bottom lines. Uh, from the perspective of, uh, of Ramallah, Gaza, um, uh, Hamas and Gaza had launched a coup and nothing other than a full reversal of that so-called coup and in effect uh, unconditional capitulation by Hamas um, uh, would be accepted as a basis for reconciliation. Secondly, from the perspective of, uh, of Hamas, any concessions that it offered to the Palestinian Authority and particularly to the Palestinian security establishment in the Gaza Strip would have to be reciprocated by um, Palestinian Authority concessions in the West Bank. The problem here, of course, is that A, the Palestinian Authority was simply unprepared to make any such uh, concessions, and B, even if it was, it would have been blocked from uh, offering those concessions in practice by the full control that Israel ultimately maintained over, um, over the West Bank. Secondly, you began to see, I, so the bottom lines were incompatible, also with respect to the political program, which I can get into later. But you also began to see, I think here, a growing bifurcation between the leadership of Mahmoud Abbas on the one hand and of the Fatah movement um, on the other, which is to say that there were certain elements and streams within Fatah that were significantly more amenable to um, uh, reconciliation with Hamas than was the leadership of Mahmoud Abbas and, and his immediate uh, entourage, just as within um, uh, Hamas as well, I think, there were um, elements that were more amenable to reconciliation on the grounds that for them the prize was the integration of their movement into the Palestine Liberation Organization, while um, other elements within the movement that were more concerned with consolidating the movement's territorial base um, uh, in the Gaza Strip and therefore maintaining control of the Gaza Strip were um, uh, less uh, amenable. Another key obstacle, of course, was regional and international. First of all, the um, self-appointed and accepted uh, sole mediator for um, uh, Hamas Fatah reconciliation was, of course, the Egyptian government. And you had this bizarre situation where the official sponsor for reconciliation rejected reconciliation. So they would be re seeking to reach agreements that they would at the same time be advising one of the partners not to accept because Egyptian policy was very much geared towards reversing Hamas's political and territorial gains and reestablishing the um, unhindered supremacy of the Palestinian Authority. Um, uh, the international community took a very similar, or at least um, those elements that define themselves as the international community, particularly the United States and the European Union, took a similar uh, position, which was to reject any agreement that resulted in meaningful power sharing between the rival Palestinian faction, and particularly which resulted in meaningful political participation by Hamas 
in the Palestinian political system. Israel had a slightly different attitude in the sense that I think that um, Israel's primary objective was um, to sustain and, where possible, to deepen um, uh, Palestinian fragmentation. Whatever Israel may have disliked about Hamas, I think ultimately it preferred to see the West Bank and the Gaza Strip under rival leaders increasingly um, uh, fragmented and divided from each other as opposed to becoming united once again under a um, single consensual political leadership. So, you know, moving forward, and let's say over the, during the intervening decade, we see quite clearly um, uh, that, that we're dealing with an intractable strategic impasse, at least in terms, um, in Palestinian domestic terms. First, if we look at um, the political strategy that was adopted by Mahmoud Abbas and his leadership, I tried to outline it in, during my introductory remarks. And um, the idea that a so-called responsible Palestinian leadership behaving in a way that would be acceptable to the Israelis and, um, uh, and to the Americans and conducting the necessary policies and so on would somehow motivate, if not the Israelis, then at least the Americans to launch a credible diplomatic process resulting in Palestinian statehood. Well, of course, you know, it, it had never been the case that the reason Israel occupies um, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip is because the Palestinians were insufficiently transparent or you know, didn't have um, uh, sufficient uh, democratic norms in their elections or any of those things. Israel was there um, for its own reasons with every intention of remaining there um, permanently, not, not indefinitely, but permanently, and determined to remain there despite any measures the Palestinians might take that could contribute to a uh, meaningful peace process. And this was ultimately not something that the Americans were prepared to seriously challenge. And we saw that, for example, with the, with the Kerry um, uh, diplomatic initiative, with the extremely half-hearted attempts by the Obama administration to persuade, and I say persuade rather than compel, um, Israel to accept a um, uh, settlement freeze, not a moratorium on settlement expansion, but a temporary, time-defined, geographically defined settlement freeze in um, uh, in the West Bank, and so you know, and then you had the uh, statehood initiative, which I think is perhaps best described as as a farce, uh, given the way it was implemented by the Palestinian leadership. And again, you had a total failure of the strategic approach, if I can use that term, of the leadership in Ramallah. For its own part, Hamas had itself also reached a strategic impasse. Um, Israel engaged in um, uh, several widespread assaults on the Gaza Strip, and it was very clear from the way that Israel attacked the Gaza Strip that it was on the one hand intending to uh, implement or to inflict maximum uh, destruction and widespread uh, uh, death and mayhem upon um, uh, the Palestinians, upon the Gaza Strip, upon the Hamas movement, but would not go that extra step to seek to actively overthrow Hamas um, for the very simple reason, again, as I was saying before, that it preferred a divided and fragmented um, uh, Palestinian political system that rather than one that was potentially united. And then as we get into the era of uh, Arab upheaval, 
um, uh, the Hamas leadership that had been based for um, almost uh, two decades, I believe, in Damascus uh, broke with the Syrian regime, relocated uh, to Qatar, um, uh, something which also severely strained its ties with its other main regional patron, um, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and um, was not only hoping but also expecting that it would be rewarded um, uh, with um, uh, a renewal of ties and sponsorship with the Gulf states such as Saudi Arabia uh, and so on, and that it would be somehow at some level recognized um, by some of its uh, former uh, international parties that had been boycotting it, particularly within the European Union, and several years on had absolutely nothing to show for its uh, change of course and, and change in, uh, in strategy during this decade. And the other point, of course, is that the Palestinians, um, whether uh, Fatah or Hamas or collectively, had no coherent strategy um, to respond and seek to benefit from the regional upheaval that began in Tunisia and Egypt in 2010-2011. Um, rather than seeking to uh, once again make the question of Palestine um, uh, the, the, the sacred issue, if you will, which stands above and beyond uh, political differences within the Arab world and the region, and is something that, um, uh, that unites um, Arabs and others in the region around um, uh, support and solidarity with the Palestinian people, both Fatah and Hamas, um, had a very opportunistic approach to regional upheaval and changes. In other words, they sought to, um, uh, uh, they sought to mobilize and leverage changes of government in Egypt and elsewhere in order primarily to strengthen uh, their individual position vis-a-vis -vis their domestic rivals rather than, for example, explore how these changes can be used to more effectively challenge Israel and and its um, uh, occupation. So moving uh, right ahead, we now have, have a situation in, in, in the West Bank where the leadership of, um, of Mahmoud Abbas is facing unprecedented crisis in terms of uh, a pretty much thorough lack of legitimacy um, across the board, including among the rank and file of the Fatah movement itself. Um, rapidly losing in, um, in credibility and authority, but nevertheless, one in which Mahmoud Abbas remains in quite uh, impressive full control of the Fatah movement, primarily by destroying it, I would argue, um, and, of, and of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And you know, many people, of course, are talking about uh, this man being in his mid-80s and succession scenarios and all the rest of it. Well, you know, according, according to one report, there was a recent meeting of the, um, of the Fatah Central Council where Abu Mazen walks in and he says, look, I know many of you um, are raising questions about the, about the succession um, uh, within the Fatah movement and the PLO, but I'd just like to inform you, my father lived to the ripe old age of 103, I'm still in my 80s, so I'm not going anywhere. Um, uh, you know, you, you, you better uh, uh, get used to putting up with me for a while uh, longer. You had, of course, also the growing feud between Abbas and Mohammed Dahlan, 
which I think has to be characterized as nothing more than a personal feud because, um, you know, and uh, politically, they're identical twins. They're clones of each other. Um, yet in the seventh Fatah Congress held uh, earlier this year, um, uh, Abbas managed to, I think, quite effectively and thoroughly and comprehensively outmaneuver uh, Mohammed Dahlan, even though Dahlan was being supported by the so-called Arab Quartet of Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and uh, first and foremost, uh, the United Arab Emirates, which has become his chief um, uh, regional sponsor. So the PA really has no political project except one that is defined by the rejection of any alternative to what it is doing. And to give one example, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, particularly in his early years, was often raising the slogan of um, uh, popular mobilization and nonviolent resistance and so on. And I think it was clear at the time, but even if it wasn't, it's become very clear since that these slogans ultimately were intended as nothing other than an attempt to delegitimize the armed resistance of the Second Intifada, and particularly that of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades of his own Fatah movement. And once he had successfully dismantled those militias, you stopped hearing about popular mobilization and nonviolent resistance. Absolutely nothing was done to either mobilize the people or resist nonviolently. To the contrary, um, uh, the PA has become something of a effective adversary to popular mobilization and, and nonviolent um, uh, resistance. And on, on this basis, I would, I would say that um, the continued leadership of, of a thoroughly discredited and increasingly ineffective Mahmoud Abbas um, remains the main impediment to any progress on any front by any Palestinian uh, initiative. In the Gaza Strip, we now have a um, Hamas movement that has as yet proved itself incapable of reconciling what are perhaps the incompatible um, uh, dynamics of resistance to Israel on the one hand and governance um, within the Gaza Strip on the other hand. Hamas seems to have, despite its um, rhetoric, one foot in the Oslo Agreement and one foot out, and these two feet are, as often as not, um, kicking each other rather than uh, walking, uh, walking forward. Of course, during the past year, had uh, changes of, uh, of leadership and the election of a new, um, uh, election of a new leadership within, within the Hamas movement and Hamas attempting to redefine itself as a um, uh, national liberation movement rather than the Palestinian branch of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood organization and formal acceptance of the two-state settlement framework um, uh, and so on in its uh, political document. That's certainly one way to look at it. I think perhaps a more interesting way to look at the changes within Hamas is that it represents the um, consolidation of what had already been a dynamic already taking place within this movement, which is that leadership has gradually gravitated towards those within the movement who are exercising effective um, uh, power and authority on the ground within the Gaza Strip, gravitating towards them from uh, an exiled leadership whose primary function had been um, uh, to obtain uh, funding and political support for the organization, but was increasingly capable of doing so 
in, in recent years. One thing the new leadership has been doing is changing the regional approach of, uh, of Hamas, and this is not one of, um, of jettisoning um, the core relationships it has with uh, Qatar and Turkey in favor of rebuilding relations, for example, with uh, Iran or Egypt, but rather of seeking to broaden wherever possible and diversify its, its regional and international um, uh, relations. So by way of conclusion, just to look at, um, um, at, at the current state, we now have this recent Palestinian reconciliation agreement um, uh, signed in Cairo. I really don't see any particular grounds uh, for optimism because I think the underlying issues are unresolved. The, the control over the security sector in the Gaza Strip. I mean, the, the agreement speaks of the formation of a new government which will actually be able to govern, but security within the Gaza Strip will remain um, exclusively in the hands of, of the Hamas movement, primarily through the activity and existence of militias and forces that exist outside uh, the government. So that's one core unresolved issue. The other core unresolved issue, of course, is the integration of Hamas and Islamic Jihad into the PLO. And without that, um, it's simply impossible to achieve a consensual um, political program and national strategy that can, um, that can begin to address the existential crises that are facing, um, uh, facing uh, uh, the Palestinians. I mean, it may well be that both Hamas and Fatah take satisfaction with what they have achieved. In other words, Fatah is prepared not to challenge Hamas on resuming uh, security control of the Gaza Strip because it recognizes that the price for doing so would be Hamas and Jihad integration into the PLO, and it's not prepared to do that. And Hamas similarly will be prepared at least indefinitely to relinquish the demand for political participation in the PLO because it recognizes um, uh, that the benefit of not doing so would be for it to indefinitely retain control of, of the Gaza Strip. And then finally, you know, since we are in the United States, a few words about Plan Airhead, namely um, uh, the Trump uh, ultimate deal. I, I really think it's um, a waste of time to talk about it. It's, um, it, it doesn't even rise to the level of a, of a farce. You know, you have the modern day um, uh, Metternich, um, Prince, Prince Jared of Kushner, who would probably have difficulty um, uh, finding some of these territories on the map, even when he has visited them. Um, somehow, you know, um, in addition to his 17 other weighty uh, portfolios in his, um, in his spare time on a summer evening, developing a plan for um, permanent peace in the Middle East and all the rest of it. You know, I, 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 don't think, I don't think it's, um, many people will recall that, you know, Netanyahu was bragging about um, uh, sleeping in Kushner's bed when he was visiting his parents and so on. And sure, um, the family is involved in settlements and so on. But I think it would be wrong, I think it would be wrong to uh, look at this administration's interests in the Israeli-Palestinian file as being ideologically motivated. I think probably they're simply not interested. I mean, Trump is after all a television star who if he excels in one thing, it's telling people what they wanna hear 
in the understanding that if you again tell them what they want to hear the next day or the next week, they'll probably have forgotten what you'd originally uh, promised them. I think, you know, all this um, talk about an ultimate deal and uh, getting serious about peace in the Middle East and so on, maybe he thought he meant it at one stage and then the moment his son-in-law was confronted with the complexities, put it on the back burner and, and they have um, absolutely no intention uh, of moving forward, which brings us back to square one, which is that um, salvation for the Palestinians was never going to come uh, from outside uh, the Palestinian political system anyway. It was never going to come from either Washington or Brussels, let alone um, uh, Tel Aviv. And therefore, what, was, what has always been true remains true today, and I would argue is even more true today, is, is that only when the Palestinians are able to uh, join forces and renew their national movement under a credible, legitimate, and representative leadership, which is able to formulate a coherent national strategy for um, addressing these challenges and to develop the political program and tactics for achieving those defined objectives, can we begin to talk about moving from a people which is increasingly at risk of becoming politically meaningless demographic reality uh, to once again a, um, a meaningful political player capable of achieving its inalienable right to national self-determination. Thank you. Well, as as, as I was um, suggesting earlier, the, the PA's approach to regional upheaval has been a very narrow and factional one. In, in other words, rather than um, uh, seeking to benefit from or limit the damage of um, or seeking to leverage regional changes to enhance um, the centrality or reestablish the centrality, of, if you will, of, of the Palestinian, uh, of the question of Palestine, in the region and the Arab world and internationally, it has rather looked at them primarily through the narrow factional lens of how it has affected um, its ongoing uh, rivalry with, uh, with Hamas. And I think the best, um, the, the, the most interesting part of this has been the changes in, uh, in Egypt, where when Mubarak was overthrown, of course, he was replaced by a uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, government, which was in effect uh, um, uh, a close ally of uh, Hamas, and this was seen as a catastrophe in, uh, in Ramallah. And then in June 2003, with the Sisi coup, um, there was practically dancing in the streets in, uh, in Ramallah, and, um, and uh, you know, the atmosphere in Gaza City was almost one of a, of a funeral. But what has happened since then is that the United Arab Emirates has emerged as the key sponsor of Mahmoud Abbas's main rival these days, which is not so much uh, Hamas as it is Mohammed Dahlan. Dahlan has developed a very close relationship with the Sisi regime in, in, uh, in Cairo. And so you now have the situation effectively where if you, if you look at you know, the regional changes, um, regimes in the region have either drawn on the whole have either drawn closer to Hamas, as had been the case in Tunisia um, uh, and Egypt in particular, 
or closer to Dahlan rather than the Palestinian Authority. So I, I would say that the Palestinian Authority is as a result of its own uh, mismanagement one of um, one of the primary victims of uh, of the region, uh, regional upheaval, and it's very much a self-inflicted wound. I think the interesting potential exception to this rule is Syria, where, as you know, relations between uh, Fatah and Damascus have been strained to the breaking point, more or less going back to the mid-1960s. And in recent years, um, uh, Damascus and Hamas had been very closely uh, aligned. With the rupture in relations between Hamas and Damascus, um, uh, relations between Fatah and Damascus have improved very appreciably, though what this means in practice, um, you know, when you, when you have what you could perhaps consider an ally, which is too preoccupied fighting for its own survival and reestablishing its authority over its own, uh, over its own territory and um, you know, unable to do anything much of consequence um, for a movement like Fatah is kind of an open question. Yes. So you mentioned how Donald Trump's ultimate deal was something was less than a joke. Uh, I admit, I actually had somewhat high hopes. I had high hopes for Donald Trump uh, in regards to this issue because if he had any ideological commitment to anything, it wasn't Israeli primacy or, or, or their ambitions in the Middle East. Uh, during the Republican debates, he had said he would be neutral on Israel, which in a Republican debate is pretty much announcing treason. General Mattis, when he appointed him as a defense secretary, he had said that Israeli settlements were an obstacle to peace. And even now, like his moves to, 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 to help Israel have been pretty meaningless. I mean, he pulled out of UNESCO, but we hadn't been funding UNESCO for many years. He didn't back the Kurdish um, independence movement, even though the Kurds have been very pro-Israel, and certainly Israel was very pro-Kurdish. He seemed pretty open to the idea of Bashar al-Assad staying in power. And just in general, he seemed to really want to, at least when he was running, he had, the, he had this America first ethos where he didn't want to be in the Middle East. And so with all these things, I figured he's not like the other, like other previous Republican administrations where their commitment to Israel and, and its security has been almost, I mean, almost overtly like religious in nature. Do you agree with that assessment that Donald Trump is not as committed? No, I, I, can see, I can see why you make that assessment, but where I think you're wrong, basically um, uh, you're suggesting that there was a legitimate reason to have uh, high hopes of the Trump administration's approach to the Middle East based on um, Trump's occasional professed neutrality and some of his appointments and so on. Well, while I can see why you would make that argument, I think where it falls short is in the assumption that Trump at any point had any understanding of any of the statements he was making. I mean, when I you know, called him an airhead, I chose my words advisedly. I think he will just say whatever comes to his mind because it seems to be the best thing to say in that context without either understanding what he's saying or meaning what he's saying or let alone having any intention to follow through on, on what he's saying. So that's where I think one needs to make a distinction between Trump and other politicians in terms of trying to analyze their statements or to take them seriously. I mean, you can just, you know, kind of, I think at least, and certainly on this issue, you can safely ignore anything and everything this guy says about anything. That's, that's my view. Now, where you're right is, is on um, some of these other issues, like uh, the point you made about uh, 
Mattis having uh, described the settlements as an obstacle to peace and so on. But here I think the challenge becomes um, that if you're going to formulate and implement a policy on an issue as, as crucial to domestic uh, American politics as Israel and Palestine, it's not really going to happen unless you have a unified American government speaking with a single voice and capable of putting where its mouth is, its money where its mouth is and following through on its decision. Uh, and as we've seen with a number of these um, uh, other policies in the region, like the Qatar crisis, for example, you know, getting Washington or even the White House to, to speak with a unified voice is, is very unlikely um, uh, to happen. So it's, it's on those grounds that, that I would um, uh, disagree with your assessment. Whereas if it had been made about a previous um, administration, I, I would be uh, much more amenable to agreeing with you. You had another question? Yes, so another question I had. So, ben, so the Israeli right is clearly not even slightly in entertaining the idea of pulling out of the West Bank. It just doesn't exist. And just the other day, I read an article by the head of the Israeli, I'm guessing for them, it's called the Labor Party, or whatever their, their left-wing opposition is. And the head of their party openly said that you know, a peace agreement doesn't mean settlement deconstruction. And then he actually mused further that the West Bank could probably handle between two and four million more settlers. So you now see pretty much on both sides of the aisle in Israel that the settlements are here to stay, that Israel is there to stay. And so in that case, if, if the two-state solution, which I thought was you know, a joke six years ago, it's still a joke now, it's, it's broad consensusly not going to happen. So going forward, do you think, especially as we approach like a, a, a pousing majority between the river and the sea, and then like a, a stronger Arab majority within Israel, like what is internationally recognized as Israel. Do you think we will see a one-state solution in the next? Well, um, first of all, just regarding your observation about the rightward shift in in Israeli politics. I mean, the dividing line within the um, Israeli political spectrum used to be between those who wanted to retain an indefinite or permanent hold of all the occupied territories were, uh, versus those who were um, uh, prepared to reach some form of territorial compromise in order to achieve normalized relations with the Arab states. And I don't, and you know, none were ever advocates of a withdrawal to the 1967 borders, but for example, the Labor Party had this illusion you know, that they could keep a third or a half of, uh, uh, of, of, of the West Bank and that by relinquishing um, the crumbs that remain that they could then somehow um, uh, achieve peaceful, normal relations with the Arab world. I think the dividing line today is between those who want to indefinitely or permanently um, maintain control over the occupied territories on the one hand and on the other, those who want to formally annex some or all of the occupied territories. And that is, I think, um, a new development. Now, what does this mean for the two-state settlement framework? Well, why does a two-state settlement framework have to be something that Israel accepts uh, for it to be implemented? Um, and so, you know, Israel is even more opposed, I think, to a one-state solution than it is to a two-state settlement. So I think Palestinians should be basing this strategy, um, should be basing their strategy on what most effectively meets um, uh, their interests and rights and so on, rather 
then base it on something that Israel is or is not willing to accept. I mean, ultimately, any solution is going to have to be imposed um, on Israel because Israel will accept no meaningful um, resolution uh, of this conflict, whether one, two, or uh, or, or three states. Um, and so, and so the fact that Israel seeks to maintain uh, permanent control of Jewish settlements in the occupied territories, well, that's, that's going to be the case however, however you look at it. And I don't think Israel's um, intention to, uh, to become a permanent occupier should determine Palestinian strategy in this respect. Yes? The way you describe the history of the area, though, it doesn't sound as though the Palestinians can determine a national interest because of internal divisions, right? Internal mm -hmm. competition for mm -hmm. political power. A change in leadership probably won't change philosophy. It would, it would seem that the Arab states are not, not happy, but will accept the kind of internal division so it means that the Arab states wouldn't be interested in imposing some solution. The United States isn't interested in imposing a solution. Yeah. You know, and in respect of your question about, let's say, the, the relationship between the Arab and Palestinian dimension, the way that the Palestinian cause exists in the Arab world today is not whether or not these governments and their peoples will support the Palestinian people in their anti-colonial struggle against Israel, but rather whether they will um, support Fatah against Hamas or Hamas against uh, Fatah. And, you know, what idiot is going to want to be invested in this petty and trivial and, and meaningless um, uh, political rivalry? I remain convinced that if the Palestinians manage to put their own house in order, and I am convinced that they can put their own house in order. And if they um, are able to develop a meaningful national strategy and political program being led and implemented by a credible and representative national leadership, that the Arab governments will increasingly fall in line, if only out of fear for the consequences of being seen to be normalizing relations with Israel. Um, at the expense of Palestinian rights, only, if only out of fear of, of their own people, I certainly would not minimize the hold that the Palestine question um, continues to have on on um, uh, on the Arab people, on the Arab peoples, and on their on their imagination. And I think you know people in recent years have been saying, well, it's. Um, it's because of, uh, you know, what's going on in, in Syria and Yemen and Libya and so on. The Arabs aren't interested in, in Palestine anymore. I think that's only very partially the case. I mean, as we saw last summer with Israel's attempts to um, consolidate its control over the Haram al-Sharif, the uh, so-called uh, Temple Mount uh, complex, it didn't require any agitation by either the PLO or Hamas or any Arab government, you know, for people to immediately go out on the streets and uh, deal with this issue as if it was their own. I mean, part of the reason that this issue was ultimately um, resolved fairly speedily is because you had governments that are close allies, if you will, of Israel and the United States who are ringing the alarm bell in, in Tel Aviv and Washington, saying, you know, if you don't resolve this, you're endangering us. 
And so I, I, I remain absolutely convinced that Palestinians um, retain the capacity to once again make their cause central uh, to the region and once again um, uh, um, important on the international agenda as well. Does that require a change in leadership? Absol absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Who's, who can impose that? Who can force it? I don't know if it can be uh, forced. forced. Perhaps it has to be forced by a combination of God and nature. Um, but um, I, I am convinced that the current Palestinian leadership is congenitally incapable of doing anything meaningful or positive for, the, for a Palestinian national agenda. And it is only after this um, uh, leadership either departs from or is removed from the scene that one can then begin um, to pose the types of questions that you're asking about. And perhaps, you know, our responsibility is, you know, if, if we have so little capacity to hasten that day, then to at least do what we can to prepare for the, um, uh, for the day after when, when new possibilities um, uh, arise. You know, um, part of the despondency today that you see, for example, in the occupied territories is that people who kind of advocate these kinds of fundamental transformation won't present you with a plan anymore of, of how they think it, it can be achieved. Rather, they think, you know, they say the current situation is unsustainable, it can't last forever, and, you know, if these people don't either leave or drop dead, um, the only way there's going to be change is through some kind, you know, people compare it a bit to the eruption of the first intifada, which the immediate proximate cause was a car accident. And so, um, coming again to the example I, I recently gave you of, of the developments at the Al-Aqsa Mosque um, uh, this past summer, people strongly feel that if that had continued for another several days or weeks, it would have caused an explosion of sorts in the occupied territories that by no means would have been exclusively directed at, uh, at the Israeli occupation forces. Right. Yes? What do you think that would have looked like, um, because I was in Palestine this summer during the Al-Aqsa you know, mm. event, and remember coming home and somebody saying that was almost the third intifada, and I was like, wow, that didn't really seem like it on the ground. So I was going to ask you, what, what do you think it would have turned into based on just kind of how things were playing out on the ground this summer? Well, I mean, if you're going to ask what I, what I think would have happened if the Al-Aqsa situation would not have been resolved this past summer, it's, it's really engaging in pure speculation. And the reason that that's the case is that you no longer have the type of organized and mobilized forces on the ground that you had in either 1987 or in 2000 or, you know, 76 uh, or, or, or in any of these other cases. And so it, it, it really, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that something had to give, you know, and the pot would have boiled over, but how and in what form and what would have been the consequence is, I think, um, uh, pure speculation that we'll, you know, we'll, at this point, we'll just have to say we'll never know and perhaps we'll find out um, sooner rather than later. I'm just curious because mm. just to gauge kind of what it does look like practically on the ground and. Um, I, I think it's really interesting a lot of what you've said because most of the Palestinians I think that I was talking with and nonviolence organizations I was interacting with and um, are really kind of putting the 
the hope in America or diplomacy and maybe on, on Americans to act and all, all this, but I, I think your assessment makes a lot of sense that there does need to be a lot of unification. And um, I was going to ask what you think American involvement does look like kind of clandestinely like with the BDS movement or any kind of like political pressure that like grassroots movements could help or is kind of maybe Two, two points. First of all, just, you know, continuing on um, uh, from the previous discussion, you know, what, what, what I noticed was that people were obviously, you know, outraged at the Israeli attempt to extend their sovereignty over this place, which is sacred for a combination of not only religious, but also um, uh, national reasons. But in many cases, were equally and sometimes even more so outraged at their own leadership, which is supposedly the custodian of these rights, um, and seemed um, both unable and unwilling to do anything meaningful to uh, defend these rights, particularly where the defense of those rights um, would have included any kind of diplomatic or other confrontation with its patrons and sponsors. And that really got to people. And that's why I'm convinced that if things had developed uh, further, it would um, not have been directed at Israel alone. And that is why I think the attempt was ultimately made um, to defuse that situation. Um, in terms of what, what role for others, well, I think, you know, um, the international um, solid, solidarity movement has an absolutely vital and crucial role to play in promoting Palestinian rights, particularly in a, in a country like the United States, which I don't think can be viewed as a um, uh, neutral or external power to this conflict, but is extremely deeply implicated. And I think it's fair to say that this occupation requires more than Israeli boots on the ground to sustain itself.